0: Hello, friends. Welcome to the Riot Woman podcast, which features creative conversations with artists, academics, and activists who identified with or were influenced by the punk and riot girl subcultures. I'm your host, Eleanor Cowett Whitney, a feminist writer and marketer based in Brooklyn, New York, where I'm currently sitting with some very loud birds outside my window, so you might hear them in the background of this intro. I am also the author of the forthcoming book, Riot Woman, a collection of memoir-infused essays about how Riot Girl has shaped my life. On this show, I'll be talking with a diverse range of guests and invite them to reflect on how punk, feminism, and the do-it-yourself spirit has impacted their adult lives and the work they make. I'm really excited to share my conversation with Karina Rossella of Rise Up Good Witch with you. Karina is a writer, zine maker, anthropologist, herbal magic maker, tarot reader, and the host of the Rise Up Good Witch podcast. She hails from Northern California and is currently based in Joshua Tree. We recorded this conversation outside of Joshua Tree in Landers this February, so it was a really magical setting for this talk as well. Karina and I met in Portland, Oregon around the year 2000, when we were both at the end of our teens. We both hail from rural places and moved to Portland to experience punk, feminism, and live on the cheap. It was a different time in Portland back then. We were both part of a very dysfunctional radical feminist art collective, and it taught us both a lot about how feminists and radicals can hurt as much as support each other. Since then, we've both grown as people and feminists and having this conversation was a powerful reminder about the possibility of growth and healing. In this conversation, we discuss how she discovered plant medicine while living in a Portland punk house, finding Riot girl and Zines at the advent of the internet while the punk community in Karina's hometown was actively unsafe due to misogyny, racism, and abuse. Reflect on the expansion and evolution of her intersectional feminism and how it informs her witchcraft practice, and the ongoing challenge of understanding a concept intellectually and then actively applying it to your own life. We also talk about how to mitigate the harm of privilege as white people and how to embrace that journey. Karina also speaks about negotiating life under capitalism while building a sustainable small business and resisting cultural appropriation and working to decolonize witchcraft and plant medicine as a white person. Not only was this conversation healing and magical, but as I mentioned, we held it in the desert. And the next day after Karina left where I was staying, I woke up to about six inches of snow in the desert, which is about a once in a decade occurrence. And that was such a strong reminder for me about how much magic our world contains and how much power nature really has. And it's a privilege for us to get to harness a bit of it for our own healing. So with that, enjoy our conversation. Welcome. Thank you so much, Karina, for coming out to Landers to chat with me. Mm-hmm. So first, for people who don't know you, could you introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do?
1: Yeah, my name's Karina Rosella, and I have a small um, apothecary and tarot business called Rise Up Good Witch, and I've been doing it for just about a year and a half or so. It hasn't really been that long, but it's been really all-encompassing of my life. And I have a podcast. It's called Rise Up Good Witch and an e-zine. And I do some writing and the kind of inspiration behind all of this because I've been really interested in plant medicine I've been doing tarot both of those things for more than 10 years as kind of like a side hobby and they kind of became my my full-time um life um you know in the last year or so just kind of serendipitously and I feel like I I try to tie together like healing and social justice and personal narrative personal accountability and uh storytelling all together kind of with like using plant allies for healing and doing kind of like psychic channeling work i guess you could say so yeah that's right now i'm living in joshua tree california i've been down here like uh, three or four months now and i am from northern california humboldt county
0: so, how did you first get into plant medicine and tarot and that kind of magic-oriented work?
1: Yeah, so you know, it's one of those things where when I look back at myself as a child, like childhood me, I was always into it. Um, <laughs> I and I now I just actually just found out because I've been doing some ancestor work that the on my mom's side my you know that there was some psychics you know witchy stuff like going on so I think it's been part of who I am but I also think that I didn't really kind of like explore that side of myself until what we know in astrology as the Saturn return which is around 27 and a half 28 it's when Saturn returns to the time of your birth the place of your birth and you kind of like re-examine all the structures in your life So um, I remember when I was uh, in my early 20s and I lived in Portland, the story I always tell people about how I discovered herbal medicine uh, because I wasn't a believer. Um, I was put on a lot of pharmaceuticals when I was a teenager. And, um, you know, that's just what, you know, happened. That's how my family dealt with like what I was going through. But I kind of was always really skeptical of plant medicine. And I was living in this punk house in Portland. I was like, you know, riding my bike everywhere. I was like really, I made zines. I was like kind of mean to everybody. And uh, I one of my roommates, who I still talk to, she's like still she still like books. Tar- it's funny she got me into tarot readings, and she still is like, i I want a tarot reading from you. But she um introduced me to this plant in our backyard that was like covered with old bike parts, and there was like a dead car in the back, <laughs> you know, like Portland punk house vibes. And uh, there was like this plant that smelled like lemon. and she was like, oh, that's lemon balm. you know, you can use it for anxiety. Um, and I was drinking a lot, you know, like every you know it was like Portland, you know. living in a punk house like there was like a show every night so I was drinking a lot at the time and not you know not super like emotionally mature as many of us in our early 20s were not so like not maybe like really cognizant of my own emotional reactions towards things um but I uh remember that was kind of like that's the moment that stands out because I was like this is so amazing this this plant this bush smells like lemon it tastes really good it's like a lemon mint and I remember you know sitting down with my friend and like talking with her about plant medicine and she had this cardboard box in like a closet that was like full of like these old pill bottles and like uh tincture bottles and books it was like her witchy Stash And um I just remember us like sitting on her bed and like going through it. And I was like, how is this, how does this all work? And then going to like a, you know, like a, the co-op or whatever and walking into the herbal medicine section and seeing everything and just being like, what, you know, I didn't even know about this. And I then I started growing my own herbs. And at first I was really into um herbal abortion and like reproductive health because Bush had just been elected. So I was like, I'm going to. Yeah, I was just – I had this, like, idea that I was going to learn how to, you know, control and manipulate fertility uh, because, you know, being from the mindset that a lot of us are in that community, it's, like, very nihilistic. So it was just, like, using plants as a method to try to heal, I guess, or, like, take back our bodies and our minds from, like, the state.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> I And I remember that moment well and for – those who are not sitting at this kitchen table, I'm like both laughing and cringing because Corinne uh, and I met in Portland when we were both in our late teens, early 20s. And I was also quite mean to people and I feel really bad yeah, about it now. It's, it's just, uh, I mean, I think it's part of about also not knowing totally who you are, not feeling mm-hmm. completely comfortable with that. And it's sort of lashing out as a way to protect yourself. Um, Absolutely. So let's back up a little bit. Um, yeah. Before that punk house, uh, how did you discover uh, punk or Riot Girl? Where were you? Were you in Humboldt County mm-hmm. growing up? And yeah, how did you come across it?
1: Yeah, it's kind of an interesting story because you know I'm from. For people that know like Arcata, California, Eureka, they're gonna think like, oh, it's like really, it's like Santa Cruz. It's really liberal. When I was growing up there in the 90s, it was, it was still, you know, it's very working class. It's very conservative. There's, you know, the college. But if you're growing up there, you're not necessarily, like, um, being exposed to a lot of these radical ideas. And, yeah, I mean, I was from this really conservative place. And um, I just never, you know, I was always just kind of like the weirdo outcast. And I started hanging out with, like, punk kids. But I wouldn't say that I was hanging out with, like healthy people in high school I have a lot of trauma related to being like in the punk scene in high school because I had a very you know like someone in my life was very abusive to me and um, I actually think that I found Riot Girl because I was you know the internet just became like a thing there was no Google then I don't even when I think about it I'm like how did I find out about Riot Girl? because it would have been you know through finding out about zines and I don't even know how there were like, I guess back then there were like message boards and there were, you know, websites and like you could like find a photograph of like an old bikini kill or something. So I kind of like, you know, the way that I existed, like in my community was just in, you know, when I look back on it, it's very painful Uh, because of the things, you know, that were happening to me as, like, a young girl um, who was really vulnerable to some, you know, predatory people in the punk scene, and, uh, you know, that's really hard, but I think, like, by having access to, like, the internet, I was able to read about, you know, and, like, go to the record store and find, like, tapes I guess of like bikini kill I guess CDs were like a thing like I could get like a bikini kill CD so yeah I mean I was able to kind of like get into riot girl music and punk music that was like outside of my community which was very not safe
0: yeah did you start a zine when you were still
1: living there or yeah you know, it's really funny. I don't even remember what it was called. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, it's been so long, but I did have like some personal zines. And then I moved to Portland. Yeah, when I was 18, I moved to Portland because I had a cousin up there. And I was ready, you know, to get out of that small town environment. How did
0: things change when you moved to Portland in terms of your feminist community or your relationship to feminism and Riot Girl or Zines or any of these things?
1: It's so funny because like we were in a feminist collective when we were (laughs) eighteen. Oh,
0: we sure were. And it
1: wasn't a healthy collective, you (laughs) know. No, it was not. (laughs) No, I mean like everyone was kind of mean to each other. There was a lot of bullying. But I think like I think Portland opened my eyes because it's criticized and very rightfully so for being, you know, it has a history of like white supremacy and that really still sticks today, like the mm-hmm. Pacific Northwest. And and now Portland is a completely different place than it was then. It was it was like so affordable then and it was like I walked into a place my second day in town and like got a job and, you know, it was yeah. so different than it is now um, and it was really easy to find an apartment and stuff. But I think um, I really started to learn about like what I now know is intersectionality. And I didn't go to college right away. I didn't start school until I was like 20, you know, whatever year it is where you can get the Pell Grant where you don't have to pay is when I started college. So I was just working in like customer service and living in punk houses and like making zines and just hanging out like for my, you know, my late teens, early 20s. But I think, yeah, like definitely being from like a very small rural working class, like white um lumber economy town and then moving to a city even if it's a city like portland it does open up um you know a lot of you you start to understand a lot more about like other perspectives outside of your own narrow one absolutely
0: and i really feel like that too um i wasn't from like exactly the lumber part of maine Mm -hmm. but that could be describing a lot of the state where i come from as well and i remember when i first moved to portland Oregon cuz I did grow up <laughs> in and around Portland, Maine. The first Portland, I just want to point it out. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just a little got got to get that in there. Yeah. Um but I would cry every night because I felt like it was such a big place and I didn't know what my place in it would be. And I think outwardly, I was just kind of a dick to people, but it was really coming out of this insecurity. Mm -hmm. But even though, and like you said, it, it was very white and someone who became a very, very close friend of mine and roommate for a long time, Lauren Martin, who's zines were very Mm -hmm. influential to us both her zines quantify and you might as well live um she's a native new yorker chinese and jewish and we overlapped in portland for about three months and then she was like i'm out of here it's too Mm -hmm. white and i was like what i mean i knew what she meant but even though it was very white it was more diverse than where i was from and there was like a lot more perspectives and just meeting real life like feminist yeah
1: <laughs> was different yeah. because my my experience before that you know like being in the punk scene and humble it was like I mean I don't want to you know it's it's bad it was bad like I was in a situation where I was regular being being you know like abused and that it that happens in like liberal quote-unquote like woke community you know punk communities too but just like being in a community that was like incredibly misogynist and racist you know like not just white supremacist as in white centering, but like white supremacist as in Nazi, you know, like that kind of punk scene. So going to Portland from that and then hanging out with all these like radical feminists that had been to college and had like red bell hooks was a big adjustment for me.
0: So, how did your politics or how you approach politics or your own identity sort of start to shift? Uh, In this time? I mean, that's a big question because it obviously takes a long time.
1: Like when I first moved to Portland?
0: Or as you lived there and read more and met more people and worked and just were in this different environment.
1: I mean, it's it's really interesting because this is like, you know, 15 years ago or something now. But I think like understanding, you know, there's a lot of language that we have when we're young about like who we want to be and what we want to be like. And then when we get older... And we start learning more, we can apply, you know, what concepts in the real world actually resonate with us. So I think for me, like actually becoming an anarchist, you know, like actually becoming radical, not just because people that I was talking to or reading things by identified that way and I felt aligned with them, but because I actually understood systemic inequality and oppression I mean, that takes a long time and I, you know, like I did end up going to Portland State and I graduated, but it's, you know, I don't think that like that was the catalyst for a lot of that. I think it was like being in these communities where we were doing like, you know, a lot of organizing and, um, being in Portland in, you know, Northeast Portland, like off Alberta and, or like Mississippi, I guess it's, uh, I mean, that was like a really pivotal time for like the gentrification to move in and like being a young white person, I think it was a lot and I see this I still see this I think this is going to be like an ongoing struggle for me and many white folks or like people that are in privilege it's just you know it's easy to intellectually understand something and then it's a lot harder to like actually apply those concepts and see them in your everyday life and see the way that you contribute to them because I know you know when I was in college and I like lived in a punk house and you know I was like doing a ton of organizing like I was like really involved with like cop watch I was doing a lot of organizing on campus and like for you know I don't even like remember all the things I was just really like in or you know I was really involved but then at the same time like were my actions mirroring the things that I believed like no of course not I mean there were you know there was lots that I was doing to contribute as I think like privileged people and white folks like our mere existence is going to be harmful <laughs> a lot of the time and that's what we have to learn to just mitigate that because we can't you know we can do all the volunteering and activism in the world but until we look at our own wounds and like the struggles of our ancestors and all that like we're not really we're just continuing to perpetuate that harm so I I guess I don't know if that answers. yeah absolutely
0: it. I mean there's more to say there for sure. I'm curious how to bring us back up to the present a little bit. How do you feel your witchcraft practice or Mm -hmm. and your, your connection with plants and healing is sort of your way of helping to address or heal that harm? I mean, do Mm -hmm. you, do you feel that activism and that practice come together or are you still working on that?
1: I mean, I'm always going to be working on it. You know, it's not a, there's no end, like there's no end to our journeys. Like we're always working on it. If we say that we're done, then we're not being honest with ourselves. So I think like for me, you know, I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm a very anti-capitalist person. I'm very anti-government, but like the reality of my life is that I'm living in capitalism. So that's something that I have to uh, negotiate in my life all the time and we were kind of talking about that, you know, it's like I do tarot readings at events, and I want to be accessible, like I feel like my people that I want to show up for are like working class queer people. Um, I can't, you know, I can't pay off my student loans and my debt, and I can't pay my car insurance and all my bills just doing, you know, low sliding scale work for folks who are like me, (laughs) you know, I need to be making money. So I think with witchcraft, you know, there is that connection to the ancestors, there is like, there's a movement right now for you know witchcraft and like magic to be very intersectional and to address harms caused by white supremacy by patriarchy um so yeah I try to integrate that into my practice but (laughs) it's just like such a hard question to answer (laughs) I think one thing that's really important with herbalists right now is like if you're a white herbalist if your ancestors came from you know, the European countries that are responsible for colonizing much of the world, you probably shouldn't be, I mean, I'm going to take the word probably out there. (laughs) You shouldn't be using plant medicine and practices that were used by the people that your ancestors tried to annihilate. You shouldn't be profiting off that. And yet that is something that is so prevalent. Um, You know, there's so many I, I, don't, I, I can't even say how many times I'm like, oh, there's another page of, like, a couple of white people who are, like, doing, you know, like, hair wraps or, give you know, selling bindis or, you know, just things like that where it's like, where are we, y'all? Like, what are you? Are you paying attention? This is not acceptable. So, you know, I think for me, I really hesitated to get into, like, herbalism and being a witch or whatever because I had these associations that those people were, like, really kind of co-opting indigenous, you know, pre-Hispanic indigenous practices and I didn't want to be a part of that. But, you know, the new wave of witchcraft is all, it's, like, intersectional, witch, it's, like, intersectional feminism, but, like, witchcraft.
0: Amazing. Do you yeah. find for yourself that you feel there's, like, a through line between the intersectional feminism you kind of learned about and practiced or are still practicing um, in Portland or through Riot Girl and the punk community and what you're doing now with uh, Rise Up Good Witch?
1: Yeah I mean definitely because it's like that's my foundation you know like I found Riot Girl, and again like when we talk about like the and I think about this so much like how do you live how do you think and how do you live because when I was a teenager I was very like oh, feminist and like I was like but I was like hanging out with a bunch of guys that were abusive to me because I wasn't able to like understand like the disparity there between like my what I was happening in my everyday life and what I believed in and that's like something that we all struggle with I think but yeah I think like those beliefs um, that understanding in like radical feminism is something that definitely, because like, you know, I, it, when you're doing witchcraft and when you're healing people and you're doing tarot readings, like structural violence is going to come up. Violence, you know, we're we're living in a rape culture. Like most femmes have been assaulted or harassed in some way. Those things are intersect, you know, those are intersectional issues and those have to be, you know, taken into consideration and healing work. Um, Police violence affects communities of color um, and, you know, poor working class, unhoused communities, et cetera. So it's like, you know, when you're doing healing work, how can you ignore structural violence? And then if you're doing a hair wrap, you're participating in structural violence. So anyway, yeah.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. How do you feel like you're very – I mean, I've been really inspired by the decolonist, if that's a word, practice you're trying to bring – to your work with Rise Up Good Witch, Um, how has that been received by both the feminist community you are part of and then the more like magic community more broadly?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not the only one doing that. You know, there's a lot of folks out there, so I didn't start it um, by any way, shape, or form. There are so many folks of color, like indigenous folks, black folks that are like, that have been doing this work. And addressing these harms, I think like my whiteness would have allowed me, or still could allow me to like blend in and not have to address those issues. You know, cause that's part of privilege is like, you know, the choice to be able to ignore something. But you know, it's like for the most part, I think people have really received my work well but i also think sometimes there's i'm mean, going to you know that discrepancy between like action and belief because there's people that have been like supporters of me but then they come in in my DMs and they want to you know they want to explain why they think it's okay that they use the word gypsy And I have to be like, that's not okay, you you know, and I try to come at it, you know, like when we're young 18 year old feminists, we're like, you're the one that's, you know, whatever, you know, it's all about finger pointing when you're not developed, like mature, you know, you don't have that maturity, um, which is taking a long time for me, because I've been very emotionally reactionary and defensive a lot of my life. And I've had to like really unpack that. And I still am. But I think, like, I feel that, like, my, a lot of my work as a healer has to be with white, you know, uh, white femmes, white folks who are, like, maybe resisting the idea that they probably shouldn't be giving ayahuasca ceremonies. You know, they think that it's okay. They think, oh, well, you know, for X, Y, and Z reasons, it's okay. So I think it's been really challenging for me. Like, I get a lot of angry messages from folks and that sucks like I'm a very sensitive person I'm a Libra rising and I want everyone to like me I've always like struggled with wanting wanting people to like me so it's like really hard for me to have these conversations with people and I also witness you know people being really manipulative and defensive and then I, I, I understand that that's part of the you know because I've been in that those shoes as well I think yeah for the most part like I've gotten really you know, like I've had my own business now for like a year and a half and it's going really well, but it it hasn't been easy. And it's not easy because I'm looking at myself in the mirror every day. And there's a lot of stuff that I need to work on still.
0: Absolutely. You mentioned that you hate capitalism Mm -hmm. and yet we're living in late capitalism and having to survive in late capitalism. So it's really awesome. You've been able to kind of build this business around your values and your vision within that. You do have a master's in social work. Uh, anthropology. Anthropology, <laughs> excuse me. And you worked as a social worker. Yeah. Correct. Uh, <laughs> let me, okay. Uh, maybe I'll edit that out. No, but whatever. it's okay. No, it's it was funny. You worked as a social worker. You have a master's in anthropology. So how do you kind of think about your pivot, if you will, to use a terribly corporate word, from kind of professional social worker to
1: self-employed healer? I mean, it was not planned. It was not planned at all. It's, you know, a lot of folks know, like, it, so if you get a math, you know, I went into anthropology because I'm interested in, re- you know, studying Humans and narrative. I'm really interested in, you know, storytelling as an act of social justice and healing. And I went into the field of anthropology because I had been doing like direct service work for so long. I wanted to go higher up and I wanted to be able to do a lot of um, academic research like social science research and use my writing skills and use that to like try to change things structurally which is a you know now I would be like it's kind of a lie that the system tells you you know go get a PhD and then you can write a paper that other people with PhDs will read you know I mean no no shade like I I think it's really you know I think it's cool that people do that but I also think like academia was really really hard on me and it broke a lot of stuff open inside of me that kind of was where my like witchcraft part that I had been like repressing for a long time came out. And um, I worked really hard. I mean, I still talk to my professors. They're they still use my work as an example in for incoming. And I'm like, I don't ask them. Don't I? You know, I'm just like, you know, I've gone in to talk to new cohorts, and I'm like, I really don't want them to ask me what I'm doing now. So you know, I don't. It it just kind of happened. I I had a. I'm I'm too old, you know, in a way to be part of that millennial gener. The you know, we're kind of like at the beginning of the mm-hmm. millennials end of the Gen X. are. Yeah. So it's like I didn't understand social media. I was late to Instagram and I just kind of like started posting stuff about, you know, my hobby during grad school and having a full time, you know, job working at in public health doing HIV prevention and harm reduction I I just did all my self-care gardening and I started like making stuff and giving it out to people and then you know I've been doing tarot for a long time and I just started doing it you know as a way to get back in my community and um everything at my you know I graduated my um county job like it just everything fell through there and then Um, my Instagram started getting more followers and I started a shop and then I was like, you know, this is my chance to kind of like work for myself for the first time and like focus on my creativity and like let that guide me. And I just was like, I'm going to try this out. And then on the, (laughs) and I couldn't even like find a job in my field. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It just happened. It was just kind of like serendipitous.
0: Yeah. Well, it seems like a kind of coming together of a lot of parts in your life. Mm -hmm. And it also sounds like you're taking this kind of punk or DIY approach to building a business and, and supporting yourself. You still... You were telling me earlier, you see this work you're doing as kind of a conduit for storytelling, Mm -hmm. um, for being a writer. I know on your Patreon, you make a monthly e-zine for Mm -hmm. people. So how does that sort of DIY
1: and punk approach come together with being an independent business owner? Yeah. Sliding scale is something we talk about. You know, I have, I'm kind of like far enough into my business where I'm thinking about where my... You know, you, you time isn't is is not a. How do I say this? It's like we often think about like profits, but we don't always think about time. Like you know, even if you make three hundred dollars doing something one day, if you you know. If that's going to take so much time that you can't make $300 the next day. I don't know how to explain that. This no, absolutely. bad no, But you're it's doing like, great. I'm I'm kind of like, yeah, I don't have a business background. And I have, you know, I made zines in high school. I actually like had a little zine distro called Youth and Revolt. Do <laughs> you remember? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So I get, and I try, I remember I tried for a while to do that, be like trade only. And I think, I don't know if that worked out really, but... I guess it functioned in some ways for a while for like an 18 year old trying to do that. But I, you know, I think there's been a part of me that's like, I'm a double Capricorn. So I am very like business driven in a way. But I also, it's really important for me to both not feel screwed over and not have anybody else feel screwed over like boundaries are important to me for things to be like an equal exchange of benefit like an egalitarian nature is really important to me and i think capitalism kind of like tries to beat that out of us and make us like competitive and like try to screw each other over because there's such a focus on having a one-up on everybody and that's just you know that's something i've struggled with but it's also something that i'm like working to overcome
0: it reminds me i just read jennifer armburst's book uh the principles for the feminine economy and her thesis or one of them is exactly that that we don't need that capitalism is really based on this like scarcity model this mm-hmm. one upmanship and then in fact mm-hmm. we can be collaborative and in doing so yeah. can help ourselves help our businesses so that's i think really awesome and that you're trying to kind of approach it from that
1: perspective I'm trying, yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I've noticed, um, and just from totally casual observation, so I'd love your input, that more former zine people or folks I follow on Instagram really are sort of turning to tarot or moon magic, oracle cards, and I completely include myself in this. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm wondering your perspective on that. Why is that sort of zeitgeisty thing happening, especially to those of us who are in our, like, mid to late 30s early Mm -hmm. 40s
1: yeah that's such a good question and I have also noticed that and I'm not sure you know I'm not sure I wish that I had an answer I think it's really cool because I think um you know there's a lot of there's a lot of real regressive things about tarot you know, if you look at, like, the tradition, you know, the traditional decks, like, gender roles, like, power dynamics, power structures, those things are all really traditional. But it's it's also, like, a tool that's very archetypal that can speak to us about, like, you know, it's from, like, I don't even know, 12th century, you know, Italy or something. It's really... And yet, like, so many of the human archetypes are things that are just, like, universal. And, you know, how many things are there in the world that we can say that about? Probably a lot. I don't know. <laughs> but um, I feel like tarot can be that. So I think there is, you know, an inter- there's a lot of room for interpretation in tarot. There's, the, you know, there's a lot of people doing, like, queer decks. There's a lot of, like, uh, folks of color doing, making decks, like, a lot of radical decks coming out. And do you have any favorites? Or any you'd recommend? Well, you know, I really love this one that's called Delta Enduring. It's like based in New Orleans. That one I love, but it's out of print. And that one's very radical. Yeah, you know, I don't know if I have any. My I just interviewed for my podcast my friend Marisa, um, and she has one called Serco Tarot, and I think that one's really cool. So I would recommend um, maybe folks, she's about to come out with a new one, and she's an indigenous woman and talks you know, has a lot to say about like cultural appropriation and healing practices. So I I think her decks are really important.
0: Yeah, I think I'm also feel like for me or both of us kind of came of age in the 90s, but I feel like tarot was kind of available as like an alternative youth thing Mm -hmm. then. And I had decks and I don't know how I first encountered tarot. Maybe it was even at my local bookstore or something. And I was like, whoa, what's this? And kind of liked and I know the, the sort of pop occult had its moment in the late or the early '90s, which is now being revived through shows like Sabrina and stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't watch TV, so I can't say yeah. much more than that. But I don't know. So for me, it's interesting to kind of return to it when it was something I did kind of for fun, but also really was invested in it as a early teenager, kind of before I discovered Riot Girl and feminism. Mm. So I'm just curious if like people are also kind of. Rev- reviving that part of their past but I think too I don't know for me I've gotten older and more I've always been really introspective but it's just a tool to tap into my own intuition and to remember what I know and remind me what I need to learn Mm -hmm. that's my thought yeah
1: I mean it's really hard I don't know why Because I don't, you know, I would actually say that maybe you're, we're aware of that because those are the people that we know of, but there's a lot of like people that are not DIY zine making queer people who are into tarot. You know, there's a lot of people into tarot now.
0: Yeah. And there's, there are so many decks and they're very widely available and it's, Mm -hmm. you know, easy to find on the internet and all these things as well and plenty of memes Yeah. And I think my frame is always DIY. I can't like yank myself out of it. Yeah. Mary
1: Evans actually is another. Do you know her work? I love her work. I know. And she, have you met her? No, I've not met her. she's the nicest. She, well, her art show just ended. But yeah, she has a bunch of decks that are really cool as well.
0: Yeah, I actually have two of the Spirit Speak decks with me right now. Oh, cool. Oh, yeah, and I, I just got Vessel, which I think, like, completes my
1: collection. Yeah. Do you I, have her new one? Yeah. Yeah. The apparition. Apparition, yeah. I've been using that it's one. It's gorgeous. It's amazing. It, and her pets are in it. She oh, actually, if the dog and the cat are her pets.
0: Oh my God I have to go when I go home to New York I'm gonna look through the deck and find it yeah you know and I think that's really neat too because for me owning a deck like Mary Evans's is, is also like owning art that's mm-hmm. practical exactly. and that it's like really about supporting artists as well and I think it's like feeling a connection to that artist when I use it mm-hmm. um, which I think is a really generous act and it's I just love that. I think yeah, as well. I want to talk more about the '90s, okay. and uh, but more about the revival of the '90s. Um, mm. Do you still identify with or as a riot girl? Did you ever really identify as a riot girl? I guess I didn't ask you that. You know, where where do you kind mm. of see it in your in your own history or
1: identity now? You know, I don't, and I didn't, but I, I don't really, ident- I'm not a person that's really into it, not to sound like a cheesy dude, you know, being like, I'm not into labels, but I really am not. I'm like not into labels. So I don't really see myself as a riot girl. And I even like when I was into it, I feel like I was a little too young um, mm-hmm. at the time. And also, you know, misogyny like women and fems can be really toxic to one another so I felt you know we were all really young then and it was sort of like a lot of the ideals of like no like don't kill girl love or whatever but then we're all like competitive because we still feel like there's not enough space for us at the table so you know I never I really liked the idea of it and the philosophy but I never felt like It was something that I could build community around.
0: Yeah. Do you still feel like that in some ways?
1: Yeah, I do actually. I feel like, um, you know, it's, we're living in, it's a hard world for women and femmes to um, unlearn all the internalized misogyny. I think it's, you know, even though we are affected by it, it's a hard, you know, we're all capable of perpetuating it we don't do that work. And it's a lot of work.
0: It is a lot of work. Yeah. And it's a lot of self work. Mm-hmm. And I mean, some of it for me just came with living and time. And mm-hmm. I don't know how to speed up that process. Like if someone, yeah. cause I wanted to ask like, how can we do that work? How can we engage in that work beyond being like really self-aware, which is a good first step. Mm-hmm. But I realized like for me, it's just talking to people who are generous with me, not knowing and and taking time and really yeah. feeling that. But I don't know what your experience has been in doing that work. Yeah, in what like? Oh, it specifically... and just trying to like heal from that kind of competitive yeah. one-upsmanship and create a more yeah. or live in a more generous form of feminism. I mean, I guess in a way, this one upmanship would be really called white
1: feminism. Yes, now. absolutely. It Neoliberal feminism. Fem- yeah. I mean, white, you know, white feminism is very, you know, and that's why white feminism failed, I think, is because when we look at, like, white women voted for Trump, because white women a lot of times would rather cling to their white privilege than address more intersectional issues of misogyny and discrimination and racism, which is a huge, gigantic topic. But, yeah, I would say I don't... Because it's like, you know, I'm a hypersensitive person. I'm very intuitive, obviously. And I feel that, you know, I I try to be really encouraging and honoring of femmes and, you know, people who I want to support. And I don't know how that's received, you know, like maybe it's not. We all have different upbringings. We all have different ways of receiving information so one way that someone can interact with someone can come across in a totally different way and I'm really sensitive to when I feel like someone is doing that one-upmanship thing with me and that will put me on a a little bit of like a defense not yeah maybe a little bit of a defensive but like a little bit of my walls will come up so I think it's a collective you know all of these issues are things that we have to heal collectively we can't heal them individually but I think having you know, having conversations and, like, assuming best intention is really important. Um, boundaries are really important because, you know, if someone is harmful to you, like, obviously you're not, you don't have the responsibility to have to, like, heal that relationship. If someone is not healthy for you, you can build your boundary. You can draw draw the line, and that's great. But then, you know, we collectively have to also look and decide you know, when we integrate, you know, when we're able to forgive and when we're able to work with people and lend a hand. And that's why, like, right now with my work, I'm having all these conversations with, you know, in my coming into my DMs, like women who are like, but I want to have dreadlocks because my Scandinavian ancestors and, you know, I could approach them getting angry at them, or I could approach them like telling them how wrong they are. But, I choose you know most of the time if I have the spoons to try to engage compassionately because that's the way that people grow and change and I know that I you know like I've said and done and believed so many problematic things in my life and I probably still I'm sure have other things I know that I have other things to work on like without a doubt so it's like I would appreciate if people would you know talk to me with giving me the best intention witnessing and recognizing my ability to grow instead of someone coming to me and being like well you're dumb and stupid and perpetuating like evil things you know and we have to be compassionate to one another but that isn't to say that we can't draw boundaries.
0: Absolutely and call out injustice or Mm -hmm. call and call in folks to be accountable too. It just how do you take care of yourself in doing that work because I know that that kind of one-on-one conversations they're so vital Mm -hmm. um and I think it's so generous of you to have them in a compassionate way with people but it can also be really draining how do you take care of yourself
1: I think boundaries, you know, that's just something that I've learned recently in my life. I like learned about boundaries and there's like a very witchy quality to boundaries. You know, there's all kinds of plant allies and I make a lot of plant medicines that are specifically for honoring boundaries. There's like lots of like, you know, spells you can do that come from, you know, and I, I try to work with plants and with magic that come from my ancestors, which, you know, on my dad's side, everyone um, came from Italy so I try to work with, like, a lot of, like, European plant magic and, uh, you know, those those allies can help us with boundaries because, you know, having conversations with people that are difficult, you know, as a white woman, like, that's really, it's really draining for me to have a conversation with a white woman who's very defensive and manipulative. But, like, I know that that doesn't hold a candle to how violent it is for, like, women of color and people of color to have to have those conversations so it's like if I can have one you know that's really you know what I should be doing there's no I shouldn't be applauded for it I shouldn't be like rewarded for it it's just my duty you know so I should be but I think like I don't have a huge capacity to have those types of conversations especially when people get manipulative and defensive it's very hurtful to me and you know but then at the same time I think maybe there's some learning happening on their side because I've gotten defensive before and I learned in the end and I harmed people on the way you know like so it's like it's we're all in collective like we're all mirroring each other and one experience that one person has is not in a vacuum like we all share these experiences depending on what are we our our identities are and our experience
0: well thank you so much for sharing all that with me and I think that is I, as a fellow white woman, I, I feel that as well. That's my duty. And it's so interesting because I've been trying to do a lot of, uh, immigrant solidarity work since Mm -hmm. the election and just local activism. And people will say to me, like often other white people or Mm -hmm. middle class and up privileged people, like, thank you so much for your work. I'm like, I'm not doing this for you. Right. I know. And I'm doing this because it is like really the minimum yeah. that i ca- that i should be doing that we all should be doing and i can't tell you the form that takes for you but like we need to yeah contribute to the collective in some ways and it just makes me so mad like
1: it makes me i get that all the time yeah um i'm looking a lot at cuz i've talked a lot about like white supremacy and white privilege and cultural appropriation like in you know my online work and That spawns like really extreme reactions, but sometimes it'll just turn into like 50 white women with like the clapping emoji. And I'm like, this is not like you go and write about it in your forum, you go talk about it to your family. Like, don't clapping emoji at me, (laughs) you know, just like do something because this is not. I have a business to run and I'm doing this and I'm doing it because I should, and you should too. Or
0: the strong arm emoji oh my God, is the yeah.
1: other one. I'm definitely guilty of using I know, that. But... I mean, yeah, like it's looking right in the mirror. Yeah, like we, You know, I'm guilty sometimes too of like that, but that's performative. And yeah. we really got to do a little bit more than that because um, people are suffering.
0: Absolutely. Well to wrap up, I have two more questions. One is just where can people find you to support you and to find more of your work?
1: Yeah. So my website is www.riseupgoodwitch.com and I make medicine. I was making it all from my garden but now I live in the desert and I don't have a garden so I'm just working you know with what I've got but I have an apothecary I book tarot readings and I have a patreon where I do a monthly easy and I have a podcast called rise up good witch and you can follow me on instagram where I post a lot of stuff it's at rise up good witch
0: awesome and I'll put all the links to that in this in the show notes and then my last question is just What advice would you give young, rural, aspiring feminist or feminist witch uh, who might feel like isolated in their community or their current situation?
1: You know, it's hard because I don't know the circumstances of each individual person and like what access to resources they have, you know? So it's like, it'd be easy for me to be like, just, you know, it could be like move away and like buy a bunch of books and like do all this. But like resources are, you know, it's important to consider that. But I think like listening and learning is, you know, especially if you're young, if you have a lot to learn about, you you know, you might be fed with like, you might have a lot of passion and, you know, desire to take a stand and like step up. And I think that's really important. We have to use our experiences to push uh, for a more just and equal world. But I would say like, utilize your resources and try to like, you know, hold the mirror up to yourself and try to foster community where you're at and listen just like listen to people's stories and try to be better and learn.
0: That's good advice for us all. Yeah. <laughs> Spoken like a true anthropologist yeah. and storyteller. <laughs> right. Well, thank you so much. It's great to see you and um I hope we can collectively heal the dysfunction that was our early 20s. Mm-hmm dysfunctional feminist collective oh
1: totally yeah (laughs) we are already we're
0: working on it
1: (laughs) thank you Eleanor thank
0: you Karina thank you again to Karina for taking the time to talk with me and to you for listening to this edition of Riot Woman you can find Karina on Instagram at riseupgoodwitch, support her and access her awesome monthly e-zines on Patreon at riseupgoodwitch, and visit her website and witch shop at riseupgoodwitch.com. For more wisdom on decolonizing magic practices and insights into all things feminist and witchy, check out her Rise Up Good witch podcast. For more information on me and this podcast, you can visit eleanorcwhitney.com podcast, where I've also included links to Karina's projects in the show notes. While you're visiting my site, I'd love it if you signed up for my mailing list. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at killerfem. The song Half Lie by Talene Kali is our theme music. You can hear more of her work and support her at talenekali.com. Finally, if you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. It means a lot to me and helps others discover the podcast. Thanks, and until next time...